Welcome to episode 40 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment, a podcast about all things CNC. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my captivating co-hosts, Eddie Kramer and Chris Lee. We're hobby machinists, and we'd like to bring you into our conversations about life in the shop and topics and making. Greetings and salutations all. How's it going? Going really well. How about you, Chris? Uh, Going great. Have you guys uh, been busy since uh, the last podcast? Because I know it's uh, our... This is the first episode we're recording in uh, 2020. Yep, Happy New Year, guys. Uh, I definitely have not been as busy as you based on your uh, Instagram posting. <laughs> Looks like you've been keeping busy. I'm, I'm pretty impressed. Both of you have actually managed to put up a couple of posts. I know um, going into 2020, we've you guys have had a bit of a content drought, but uh, I know you guys have a lot going on. Chris, did you ever finish the uh, Johnny Five part? Um, kind of, not really. I think I'm about like 90% done. Um, so I have, I was basically finished up until that, that deep bore and the 16th, uh, wide slot that goes 400,000 steep. And I was right on after work, I, I ran over to the bridge port. I set everything up. I drilled a hole and I didn't realize that the 1732 seconds ML that I was using, the relief wasn't deep enough. So I basically galled this shit out of the top of the part. So I was like, okay, no problem. Not a big deal. I'll just uh, uh, go back in there with the boring bar and I'll clean it up a few thousand. and it should be fine. And then when I went to do the slotting for the 16th inch mill, I noticed that the, the relief wasn't t- uh, tall enough. So I threw it on the tool grinder and I was relieving it down. And I was being really aggressive with the cuts on the dime wheel. And I snapped the end mill <laughs> right as I was the finish. And then I was basically like, oh my God, this is ridiculous. This is the easiest stuff to do. And it's so complicated because I'm trying to rush through this without, you know, just, th- I'm just trying to like get it done because I'm rushed to get to the other job and stuff. So, um, I think I will be done Monday or Tuesday. Um, I have all the stuff I need. I just need time after work to do it. <laughs> so finally it'll be sent over and finished. That's a bit of a whirlwind. You should, uh, <laughs> you should, uh, talk to Harvey tool and see if they'd uh, send you a long reach 16th inch. No, I know. I if it wasn't for the fact that I'm just been so uh, last minute everything because the bridge ports were busy, like they've been empty like the whole last three months, and then all of a sudden when I need to use it, like they all had jobs set up and I had to wait, so that that took me out another week actually because they were busy doing a bunch of side work on the mold bases. So uh, during that time, I was just waiting, like, okay, is it going to be open? Can I use it? And then uh, I didn't know how much time I had, so I figured I'd just relieve the end mill and just get it done, but ended up costing me more time because I snapped it being too aggressive. Yeah. You guys have actual jobs on bridge ports. You guys have a lot of manual like work to do in that job. I thought everything was CNC. Uh, we most of it is CNC, but there's still sometimes there's a lot of like finite work that the mold makers like to use the bridge ports for. You know, they're mold makers and they're old school, so they do a lot of the stuff by hand when they want to. Um, the CNC stuff is mainly the uh, you know the general mold based stuff, leader pins, the screw holes and bolts, counterbores uh, on the big plates. But on the small inserts and stuff, the mold makers typically like to do everything finesse by hand. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like that even like the most modern shops you run into, there's always at least one bridge port off in the back. I guess they uh they're handy for some things, right, and quick to yeah. set up. Yeah. Like if they need to drill a hole or something, right? And the time it would take for them to get one of the programmers to do it and post it, they could have already been drilling the hole and get it done. Yeah. So it's it's more about workflow and not having to 
ask you know other programmers or whatever to do things. I'm not sure if the mold makers know how to program. I think I think they do, but they still prefer to do it by hand. So it's like the opposite of uh, Saunders Machine Works, where they're trying to find any excuse to get rid of anything manual. <laughs> yeah, because in the end, you, it's even if we have everything CNC, that doesn't mean everything fits and slides perfectly. So yeah. the mold makers will have to do by hand. Like they'll seriously in there and they'll grind or they'll take off a tenth and then they'll recheck it. And they they still use a lot of like hand finishing and to make sure that the mold is within tolerance and everything slides and fits perfectly. I think part of it too is also that you guys do a lot of different stuff. You're not doing like production runs of like the same mold over and over again all the time. Right, right. Everything's pretty much a prototype. Wouldn't have expected that, but that's kind of cool. Yeah. Speaking of uh, Saunders Machine Works and uh, NYC CNC, I had someone ask me a question on Instagram looking for recommendations on learning resources and whatnot. And uh, I wanted to ask you guys, like, besides NYC CNC and like the, the Titans of CNC Academy, do you guys have any other good resources you'd recommend for uh, aspiring hobby machinists? Um, yeah, I've got a few. Um... Assuming, yeah, you said CNC, right? So mm-hmm. Autodesk puts out a ton of good fusion training, but the uh, modeling side, which is, you know, you're going to have to learn if you're not already doing 3D printing or something similar where you've played around with CAD and the CAM, you know, their CAM training and tutorials are really good. Uh, and they're always putting out new stuff. So that's probably one of the best resources. I'd say uh, they have like a learning, I can't remember, I'll put the URL up, but there's a learning site they have that has most of their tutorial content. It's mostly video. Some of it's blog. Um, and then, of course, the you could supplement that with the content from the the various annual, I mean, the various shows like AU and Fusion Academy. Oh, yeah, um, that's true. Those, those are typically not tutorials, but they're, they'll give you more insight into like how to use certain functions and what they do. Yeah, so it's a really good supplement good for the... Dives. Yeah. Yeah. So that combined with the tutorials, um, Autodesk tutorials, really good resource. And then I'm just kind of going by what helped me. Um, the very, like the, I think Carbide had some, I'm trying to remember if Carbide had tutorials. Yeah. There, yeah. You guys had some up. Really basic years stuff ago. though. Yeah. And then, um, and Bantam too also has, they've been putting out some good content lately and then YouTube, right? <laughs> we already said Saunders. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I know there's other, there's got to be other, uh, definitely there's several YouTube uh, channels out there that they're not all focused on tutorials, but they'll run them or like the guy or whoever it is that's hosting the channel will put up, you know, usually there's some good nugget on there. No, another good one is uh, Lars. He, oh, yeah, he's got Lars. super in-depth uh, on everything and anything you could possibly want to learn about uh, specifically yeah. more fusion. But I mean, just in general, he's a good resource for any any new person trying to get into it. Yeah. He's the author of a lot of the, uh, the Autodesk content on the, on the tutorial site. Um, for sure. Yeah. Really good stuff. The, one of the things that I think helped me a lot is the, f- the first thing you want to do as like a hobby machinist I'm a, is that you want to look at the forms for your machine, because it's one thing to go even NYCCNC, the lowest they go is like a Tormach. They don't know the struggles of like a smaller machine, like on a Nomad or something or a Pocket NC or Shapeoker or whatever. So a good place is just starting at 
the forum or the, uh, the Facebook group of that machine. And you can see what people who are running the materials, who are running the certain feeds and speeds and whatever it is that are actually successful. And that's a key point is that they're successful. It's not just like theoretical hearsay or theory crafting. It's, it's actually proof in the pudding. Like, Hey, I ran it at this. I did this and this worked for that. I think that was a really good, uh, beginning kind of resource to start with. And then all the things that kind of Ed just mentioned. And then you know, what I did is I just went on Instagram, found people that had the machine like Ed and you, and I just started messaging you guys, you know, and that was another way to connect and find people that were doing the thing that I already wanted to do. Um, and I think a combination of those things kind of helps a lot and kind of speed your growth a little bit. Look at the self-training resources first. Yeah. And then if you get stuck, you know, ask a friend, right? Use your lifeline. Or you can just, uh, like, if you get a new shape out, go, it's always a good idea to go right on to, to practical machinist form and ask for help. <laughs> no, just kidding. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, uh, I was about to say, like, wait a minute, that's a trap. <laughs> it's a trap. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to do that. No, don't do that. You're, it'll ruin your day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're very helpful to hobby machinists. But actually, to be honest, I, I do, I still... Uh, lurk in their forums. I don't ask any questions, but I certainly read because there's good content there also. Um, not as specific to hobby machines, but some of it's like generally useful. Um, so yeah, I still I still check those out every once in a while. Yeah, I'm a lurker as well. Like that forum has just been around so long that there's bound to be something applicable to what you're doing. Uh, so recently I was doing some speeds and feeds testing and just out of curiosity, I wanted to figure out like what's the difference what's the difference between machining acrylic and polycarbonate? They, the recommended SFM is within about 100 of each other, 600 for acrylic, 500 for polycarbonate from what I've gathered. And I wanted to see if there were any other differences um, that, like, could I just take my speeds and feeds from acrylic and port them straight to polycarbonate? And uh, so I started looking, and lo and behold, there was a topic in uh, Practical Machinist about just that. Um, didn't seem like a, a ton of difference, but... Uh, I mean, there is some repository of knowledge that is applicable to uh, us desktop users, although not you, Eddie, not for much longer. Like I said, a lot of it overlaps and it's applicable to any machine. And there's a lot that's really specific to hobby machines or, or basically any low horsepower, low torque spindle um, and machines with less than perfect rigidity, right? Mm-hmm. That won't be your problem for much longer. I'm curious to see how many people in regular forums deal with 50k RPM spindles yeah. or higher. Yeah, I mean to be honest, you know, a lot of what I've done will still come in handy, specifically on the Neo, because you know, in the, in the big scheme of machines, industrial machines, it's it's considered a low power. You know, it's like a two horsepower spindle, um, so it's not that much more than a Tormach. The higher RPM helps alleviate some of the downside of that but uh and the you know it's a pretty i think it's a more rigid machine than typical hobby machine by by far but it's not there's really not all that much torque or spindle horsepower to work with so i still gotta i still have to apply the same little tricks that we use on the like the pocket and c which like single flute tooling right use use the high rpm to your advantage with the right tooling and uh you know use the adaptive clearing tool pass versus like 100% engagement slotting where you can. Preferably just all the time. Yeah, I can just do it a lot faster than like on my, what I'm used to. Mm -hmm. 
Was was this guy also asking about like speeds and fees and stuff? Because that's usually the next question from a new person. Uh, I didn't get that, but it is something that I'm trying to work on. So um, for those of you who don't know right now, uh, uh, Carbide 3D's uh, 2D CAD CAM software, Carbide Create, is undergoing a complete overhaul um, in terms of uh, how we manage speeds and feeds. Because um, that's sort of our like intro level software, like, hey, you have a design, draw a rectangle, uh, drop a toolpath on it. You can pick from like what, what material you have and it'll auto-populate some speeds and feeds. And uh, for the longest time, there was a huge discrepancy between like what was in the program and then what's on some of the, the quick reference, like uh, infographics that we had and what people were actually running. So instead of like having some generic formula that sort of interpolates between data points, um, all of the data in that software is going to be something that I've either uh, come up with or empirically tested. So, I mean, that something like that, that's a resource that uh, someone who has no idea what they're doing can go into and sort of feel confident, pick up like a chunk of HTPE or something, slap it on the machine, create a toolpath, and have parameters that work. Um, but at the end of the day, like, there's going to have to be a little bit of uh, user input in terms of like, oh, do I want to go faster? Do I care more about surface finish? Do I back off? Do I push a little harder? Uh, that's something you're just going to have to pick up over time. But having a safe place to start is uh, pretty valuable. So it's having sort of that that safety net is something that I'm aware is important. Um, that's that's still kind of a work in progress for me though, because I'm still coming up with speeds. And, I'm still coming up with speeds and feeds, and I'm still trying to build a database that people can use. Um, but we've got so many assumptions going into this that I'm not really sure what the best way to to proceed is. Uh, my methodology has kind of just changed over time. Like when I first started working for Carbide, I was like. All right, we're going to have a 2D contour uh, recipe, a pocketing recipe, an adaptive recipe. Maybe eventually I'll get to like boring or something. Um, but at the end of the day, it was just too much data. So we just, we started scaling it back. And um, now it's just anything 2D pocket contour. It's going to have the same um, feed rate, same depth of cut. Um, because it's, it's just too much to have like a template for every single kind of toolpath, like between parallel or spiral or adaptive or pocketing 3D or 2D. And um, there's just a lot of permutations. So I'm, I'm not really sure what the best way to sort of distill this information into a quick one pager is. Yeah, I mean, this, these will be like internal tables in the software, right? For Carbide Create, like user won't necessarily they'll just pick the tool and the strategy and it'll already know correct speed and feed, right? Is that kind of pretty much. And it's not like there's yeah. a ton of strategies. It's like contour or pocket or like engrave. Yeah. So one thing I would suggest if you guys are you know going to go to the effort of collecting that data, um, and since you guys have your own tooling line, like go ahead and also put together a fusion tool library for those speeds and feeds for your tools. So it makes it easy, just easy for a fusion user to kind of, benefit from the work. Well, we have the um, tool library, but uh, that library, at least as of right now, doesn't uh, take into account different tool paths. Okay. Does it have speeds and feeds in the library? 
Um, it does, but it's like okay. you can only assign like one um, profile to it for now. I think the tool yeah. library is getting revamped, but yes. I'm not sure about that. Yeah, right now you'd almost have to do like one per material, right? Yeah, I've got a library. Yeah. I've got multiple yes. tool libraries. One is like carbide 3D parentheses aluminum parentheses wood. Yeah. Um, and even then it still doesn't um, take into account like, oh, if I want to do an adaptive roughing yeah, toolpath, right. you're going to run a higher feed rate at a lower engagement. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd almost settle on, like, uh, at least with the current restrictions on the tool library infusion, like if they just had the right RPM and service footage, then let me adjust the rest of it based on my toolpath strategy. That'd still be kind of better than what I have today. So, um, but yeah, that only works if you have, if you know what tools the client's going to be running. So it doesn't really help you. Yeah, and you're also counting on the fact that they would know what surface footage is. That that's a half step above intro level. Well, they wouldn't have to know, right? Because you that would be the one thing you provide yeah, in, in theory, I guess. Yeah, but, um, that or publish it in a table, also on the website for all the other people coming or people using the same using the carbide machines with something other than carbide create. Might not be fusion either, right? I'm actually starting to run into a lot of other packages, especially on the shape echo that folks are using, especially if they're doing just like engraving. Yeah. Or signs. Vectrix, yeah. a pretty popular one. Eventually yeah. we'll have a way where you can just look it up. Um, so we, you can get the same data without opening up carbide create, but uh, okay. I need to bug Rob on how we're going to implement that. I, I like yep. that idea of kind of the fusion stuff. I, you're just trying to condense the, the information down so it's easier for somebody to pick it up, right? Like you want to just give them one set of numbers and this will work yeah. for anything. In my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, that's actually really good for a new person because it's less for them to worry about, less for them to think about, right? If they just go 10 thou deep, 10 thou wide, it's always going to work on this feed rate or this thing. And it's a good starting point for them to get a feel for what what a safe uh, feeds and speed is sounds like. Is that what you're going to go for? Like the idea? Yeah. I mean, 10 thou deep is, you can't really go wrong there because just about any tool we have will work even in aluminum at mm -hmm. that depth. Um, it's it's just a matter of like, some people complain that it's too slow and, or like we have right. a quote unquote default tool with default parameters that gets loaded in until you've selected a material. But I don't know. It's just getting people comfortable with the idea that, like, hey, here's a safe place to start, but you can use a little intuition and speed things up or slow things down. And you need to, at some point, take the training wheels off. Yeah, I think I think what you're saying is good, though. Like, it, it gives them less stuff to worry about. And the people that are complaining that it's too slow, well, then, okay, take the training wheels off and go for it. Do 1020 or do 2020, do 3030. And then when something happens, then you back off, right? Like, that's kind of the way that you can learn how to do that. So, um, but at least they got a starting recipe that worked, even if it was slow. Speaking of, uh, speeds and feeds. So I'm, I'm getting ready to go back and revisit my, um, stainless 303 stainless and titanium speeds and feeds for the pocket and CV 250. So I don't know if you guys remember, I did a little bit of testing when the machine was still kind of pre-release and, um, I really only had one tool at the time that was kind of, had the right coating on it to run in uh, titanium. And that was, uh, it was like an one eighth inch four flute. But now I have some smaller, like, like short carbide. Uh, like to me that ran okay, but it was, I never really got the surface finish I wanted. I could, you know, never could get the chatter dialed out all the way, at least in the stainless steel. It worked okay in titanium, but 
Um, then I switched over to like a Datron single flute and that really cut well, but destroyed the tool, of course. <laughs> uh, just wanted to see how it would do in there. Um, but now I have some smaller uh, AL10 coated tools. Uh, I think like I would on the V250 and probably the V2, not the V210 because of spindle speed, but like on the V250, I would keep below three, like three millimeter and smaller tooling. So I have a 332nd inch four flute and I think I have a three flute. I need to look. I think I have a 332nd three flute. I want to kind of test both of those, see which one run, runs best. But uh, I think like I know there's some folks out there that have done some successful work in titanium on the V250. And Chris, you're one of them. So yeah, <laughs> um, I, yeah. I think you sent me some speeds and feeds before, but I'll probably hit you up for your like what was the final stuff you final speeds and feeds you settled on. And I think you're using larger tooling, right? One eighth inch. Yeah, uh, eighth inch. I think mainly eighth inch. Yeah, mainly Is it eighth four inch. Flute? Uh, four flute, yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, so that should scale down to what I want to do. Um, okay, so I'm pretty sure I was going too fast before for the four flute I was running, one eighth inch four flute. Because the thing is with the V250, I was afraid to run below like 28k RPM just because I didn't think there'd be enough torque there. But I think you were running at much lower RPM. And yeah, I, I, I was just as scared about that, but I ran it at like 200 service feet per minute. And it was like 10 or 12k RPM and okay. it worked. It worked great. It actually sounded way better than trying to go higher. Yeah, and I was getting quite a bit of heat on the 303 at the higher RPM. So I think uh, that'll as, help with that too. As soon as you enter the 3 to 350 service feet per minute, that's when I started making sparks. Okay. Okay. So yeah, I'm going to do some testing probably over the next two or three weeks on both those materials. Because uh, I, I want to go back to working on my lanyard bead project and move move on to like stainless and uh, titanium for the final ones. But uh, just kind of been putting it off because I don't really have a good recipe for those two metals yet. So now's the time. <laughs> I have a little bit of time while I wait for the Neo to get here to, to work on those. Yeah, just kind of what was what would be like what other strategies would you use on a machine like the V250 on those materials? Mm, I mean, most, it's the majority of just adaptive. Um, that basically was what I used for all that stuff. I'd use contours for a cleanup. Um, what was your I, depth of cut on the adaptive? Do you remember? Uh, Super shallow? Yeah, I think like 15 thousands. Okay. Between 10 and 20, because depending on where the tool was in its life cycle. Um, if yeah. it was like brand new, you could probably go a little bit deeper, but as it starts to wear, you probably start to need to back off. My optimal, optimal load is probably closer to like five to seven and a half thou. Yeah. And I think um, for your ring project, you're probably removed a little more material than I'll be doing. So the, I have the center bore and the lanyard to deal with for, in titanium, but on the stainless, I have um, hollow tubing mm, okay. starting stock. So I don't have to, I just have to clean up the, the edges, but uh, I don't have to remove quite as much for that. Yeah. So my, hopefully one tool will get me through one part minimum, if not more. Yeah. I think, I think anywhere between like 200, 250 surface feet and like starting at three thirty inches with those, uh, with that depth of, let's say 15 thou and then optimal load of five to seven and a half thou that, that pretty much it. And then just keeping an eye on the tool where I think mine lasted, it was like 15 or 20 hours. I think that I did on it. Oh, okay. And it, it was at the end of the 15 to 20 that I can notice it was struggling to cut. It was still yeah. cutting, but it was starting to get, you could hear it like start to, it, it got a little rough. And then as soon as I swapped out the email, it was fine again. So, um, just have a couple extras on hand as you're going through the material. 
Yeah. You know how, like when your machine is brand new, you're kind of, I was reluctant to go after titanium and stainless, like more than some basic testing. Cause it's like, I didn't want to mess my machine, <laughs> you know, yeah. mess up the spindle. But now it's like, it's been a year. This thing's holding up really well. I'm ready to go be a little more aggressive on it. Yeah, it's totally fine. Wise. I, I did yeah. grade five titanium and I did 303 stainless and it was, it was fine. Yeah, I think like titanium was your very first project, wasn't it, on your new yeah. machine? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how about 304? Did you ever run 304? Uh, no, I ended up running 303 because that's what the customer okay. wanted for that dental yeah. implant thing. Um, yeah, I, don't, I haven't seen anyone do 304. That's what the uh, – I couldn't get 303 round stock in a hot, like a pipe form. Mm-hmm. Just 304, so that's what I'm going to... I have 303 solid, but it's kind of a trade-off, right? I either have to machine out that center bore, because I don't have a drill press or anything to... Like, any other strategy for getting that center bore oh, yeah. in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, if only you had a lathe. <laughs> yeah, right. But uh, tube stock would be great, actually, for that. It's just I couldn't really find it in the material I want. We'll see how 304 works. I don't have that much to remove if I start with hollow stock, so... Uh, We'll see how it works on 304. I'll do that last <laughs> with the new tool. Yeah, that's good. Thanks for sharing that. And Winston, you were doing tool steel, but at 10,000 RPM, right? I did some testing. I started off in 303 because I've heard that that's a friendly steel or stainless to start with. And then I went to 01 tool steel, which is a little tougher. I've had some, some mixed results. On the Nomad, I can get like before i noticed like some some serious damage about two to three hours of life out of a tool which is a far cry from what um chris has gotten um but then on the shape oka when i was trying some 303 stainless i did like two hours or so of work and i got like i observed almost no um damage to the uh corner radius on the tools and I'm wondering if that maybe just the sheer mass of the shape Oko dampens out enough vibration that you can actually uh, observe like increased tool life. Um, but there's just like a lot of little factors that I am not, uh, I haven't quite mastered steel on these desktop machines yet. What uh, diameter tooling were you using? What was the largest? Uh, eighth inch was the largest, and that's only because I wanted to run at uh, 10,000 RPM, minimum of the Shape Oko, maximum of the Nomad, hopefully near the, the peak torque. Uh-huh. Um, and because of that, like looking at the surface footage, that that puts you pretty close to like your theoretical max, um, and I really didn't want to go above that. Um, and when I wanted to try and get lower surface footage, um, at that same RPM, I dropped to... Uh, three thirty seconds or a sixteenth inch. Okay. Did you notice things going better with the smaller tool? In terms of noise, yes. In terms of tool life, uncertain. Um, finish and there's a couple. Yeah, finish was all right um, okay. overall. I never really tried to like really push it because it never sounded great, but it did work. I would say that um, it might also be better to just get a. Uh, a modestly corner radius end mill and not go for something like super large, like a almost bull nose, like anything more than like five or 10 thou corner radius is probably plenty because at least with the nomad, um, I can't quite explain it, but subjectively I feel like what was happening was um, as that corner gets eroded, 
um, your your reaction force is sort of like normal to the angle of contact. And so because you've got a corner radius tool, you're hitting somewhat on a on the vertical face of the end mill, a little bit on the, the bottom face of it, and somewhere in between. So your reaction forces are like sort of kicking the end mill out axially yeah. and also pushing up um, or kicking out radially and pushing up axially. And so that means you're you're building vibrations in like two different directions and they can uh, they can be constructive, destructive, and I don't know, it just seemed a little a little sketchy. I almost feel like it sounded better when I was doing a pure adaptive um, with just a with no corner radius. Yeah, I think all my AL10 tools are have a slight corner radius on them. Yeah, if it's a small one, it's it's probably fine. It's probably enough to give you longer life without doing anything weird on a desktop machine. Yeah, I think they're all five thou. The Lakeshore ones are. Um, I've had them forever. It was like some of the first tools I bought when I got my first uh, when I got the other mill because I didn't know <laughs> I didn't know you don't get AL10 coated tools for aluminum, so they've kind of <laughs> sat unused for a long time. <laughs> it, but, it could uh, be worse. You could be like me and buy a couple. Uh, Chinese high-speed steel tools that have never been used. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, did you run them? Yeah, I should try them on the uh, <laughs> on the shape oak. With, I might uh, end up hierarchy. using them maybe in wood or something just to to get some some hours on yeah. them and take some hours off other tools. But they're really pretty useless for me. <laughs> and are they like one inch diameter? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a quarter inch shank down to uh, eighth inch because uh, I was just looking for. Uh, some cheap eighth inch tools to use. Yeah. yeah. It's, you know, it's actually probably good practice to model your end mill, even if it's a flat to add a two to three thou radius on it, because after it cuts, you know, once or twice, it's not going to be sharp corner anymore. If you yeah, look at under, if you look at under a microscope, radius, no matter what. yeah, we, we actually do that at work. We buy flat end mills, but in the programming, we add a two to three thou radius because we know after once or twice, it's going to leave a little bit of a corner radius. So, yeah, thought that was kind of cool. <laughs> Does that functionally affect how you program your toolpaths, though? Because if you're doing like a pocket, your step over should be less than a hundred percent. Yeah, no, we we it's we model the end mill with that radius, even though we don't buy it with the radius, um, because we know in real life there's a radius there. Um, and yeah. the, t the times that they take the end mills off to look under a microscope to check them and measure them, they, they can tell it's like it's not sharp anymore. So we just ingrained yeah, it the, as yeah. By the time you get to the bottom depth of whatever operation you're doing, it's it'll be rounded by then, right? <laughs> yeah. So we split uh, our end mills up and we have time life cycles for a rougher and a finisher. And we know that after this many hours on a finisher, it no longer is sharp enough to do a sharp bottom or something so they get rotated into the roughers and then new ones come in to do that flat if if we need to have a flat and can't have a radius so you guys so Winston, i know you've been looking at a pocket and c post processor is that i have been a pain in the rears of uh, the pocket and c team um, just because i'm a, a keyboard warrior <laughs> um, but Chris and I, we've both come across cases where, for some reason, a toolpath wouldn't post. And I think, Chris, this started for you back in, like, August, September or something. Mm -hmm. it, it was in the summer months, I remember, because I was, like, 
sitting inside looking out the window and thinking I could be in the garage because it's so nice out, but instead I'm sitting in front of Fusion trying to debug a toolpath for you. <laughs> um, but then this I started with, having issues too. This is with the uh, A axis, B axis rotation tool, yeah, like the, operations with those. Um, we talked about this um, before the new year. And right. I was thinking it was something like a gimbal lock condition because um, we first noticed it, or at least I first noticed it when the uh, A-axis was rotated 90 degrees. So you're, if you have a part sticking through the ER40 collet, it's pointed straight at the spindle. And then you're trying to hit a part um, on the back side. So you got to rotate the A-axis back to zero and then spin the B-axis 180 degrees. Um, oh, okay. So... I thought, it, like me coming from a, a physics a kinematics background, I was like, "Oh, that's that's gimbal lock." But then I also noticed it um, going from like a B negative ninety to B ninety, and so that took the A axis out of it completely. So I emailed Pocket and C; they had no clue what was going on. And then I remembered that I had a, a Instagram contact who. Um, I, I don't know exactly what he does, but I know it has to do with machines and programming for his day job. And um, I know that he had recently acquired like a an old dental five axis machine or something. And he said he was going to write his own custom post processor. So I knew he knew like how to read a post. So I was like, hey, can you figure out like why this post is having errors? And he looked at it and he was like, oh, yeah, like the the machine configuration is wrong or something in this, like you've got to turn off TCP or something. And so I was like, all right, that that's good until go tell pocket and see that. Cause I don't know how to explain that. Um, and then just this past week, um, they dropped an updated post processor that fixed that error. And I'm not quite sure what the, the timeline of this thing is, but he said that the original post processor that, um, Pocket NC was shipping with Fusion a year ago was fine. But sometime between then and 2019, uh, whatever version was stored on the HSM library, it like kind of regressed into an older state or something. Um, but it, it stopped working. And so the prevalence of these um, uh, B-axis uh, errors started coming up more and more. Um, but hopefully it's fixed now. Um, it's passed all of my tests. So, um, I mean, it's officially fixed as in it's up on the Autodesk, uh, post-processor library website, right? Correct. Okay. Uh, I think it went up on the ninth. Um, okay. and they also officially added support for the V250, I think. So you can pick that as a dropdown and, uh, yeah, I saw that in the release speed. notes. Um, Actually, so, I mean, this is just speculation, but I think, um, hang on a sec here, I'm trying to, I'm in Fusion trying to post. So, like, I haven't run into the issue, but now I'm kind of wondering, because I'm, yeah, I think this is what it is. So, I'm running older firmware. Um, I don't know, I'm curious if you guys have, if it's like TCP versus inverse time, because I think everything I'm doing is inverse time. Um I don't know. I was, uh, you and I, we can compare post-processor settings offline. I was kind of curious if it's if it's a TCP only thing. That may be why I don't have it because I don't think I'm using TCP. It may just be I never, ne just never done that exact operation that triggers the issue. I'm not sure. I do know that there were a couple lines related to TCP that were explicitly 
put into the new post processor. Um, I think to flag it as false, and there was a function to pick the closest angle. But again, gotcha. I don't read posts, yeah. so this is just a. I wonder if it'll. Uh, so I don't. I always think this is more of a fusion thing and a pocket and C thing. But like when I'm doing, uh, actually, never mind. I know it's a fusion thing. So like when I do pattern, like use the B axis, and like when I'm drilling angular holes around the edge of a part, um, like it always goes like it goes like almost 180 degrees and then it unwinds the other way. And it's like, it's just annoying because it, it's slow, but uh, it's like, why don't you just keep going? Yeah. But um, I think it has to do with just the way the pattern gets posted. So potentially, anyway. but the post processor is also the one that decides like which way to go to hit a certain angle. Yeah. Exactly. I've tried to post a rotary tool path um, and it just, it didn't start at zero and work its way up. It started, um, at like 6,000 degrees or something um, or some ridiculously high angular measurement high enough that like I let the pocket NC just spin the B axis for a couple minutes I came back it was still going and I just canceled it and I uh, terminated my rotary toolpath oh, yeah. experiment yeah that's definitely fusion I've seen that happen with um, with flow like uh, it has yeah it has to wind up and then it counts down to zero right or it goes starts at the highest rotation and go yeah. kind of unwinds mm -hmm. um and the, the worst part is it's i think it's like it looks like the machine's not even moving because it's kind of it's interaction between the it's like it's really slow <laughs> it's like super slow feed rate when it's doing that it's some sort of a corner case i think and like it's moving everything all the axes are moving but like i didn't think i thought maybe it looks like it's just sitting there and the spindle is spinning but actually if you look at the D, at the uh, DRO, you see that all the axes are slowly moving into position. And even on the simulator, like the Pocket NC web-based simulator, it does the same thing. So it's definitely the way it's getting posted. But I've noticed it's sensitive to, like on flow, like how many uh, stepovers you do. So it's like the really large programs yeah. seem to do run into that issue more. Well, but, that's why I usually flip the direction of that. Instead of going like whichever way spins the B-axis, I'd rather... Um, basically just traverse the y-axis and slowly rotate the b-axis yeah i think there's there's yeah you can change like directions and stuff and or uv and usually get it get it to work the way you want but um yeah this is lots of little weird things that i'm still getting used to on simultaneous five axis yeah uh, hopefully one day they'll uh i don't know do something on the machine side where it's like if it's saying like go to like thirty-six thousand degrees on the b-axis it'll just like stay there and just pretend like it actually moved or something. And yeah, it needs to be I, like mod 360, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, if it's yeah. a G0 command, maybe it's, I don't know. That's something Fusion and Pockensy will have to work out. But that would make a lot of these uh, rotary toolpaths a lot more usable. Yeah, it'd have to be like a non-engagement, non-cutting, like a G0, right? G0 mm -hmm. would be safe to do that. There's probably some reason it would not be, but... Um, Actually, that might be a good little hack for the post-processor for like one of us to do. <laughs> I'll look at that. Well, that's that's all the, the new stuff and news that I have. Um, what's everyone working on? Um, uh, Chris is trying to finish his Johnny 5 part. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, um, you know, not too much project because i'm actually in the middle of a move so everything's going to be shutting down uh, for a little bit as i take everything apart and start moving over to the new house um but i did start my master cam classes last week and that was super cool 
um, kind of backwards, right? Working for over a month with Mastercam and then, but you know, what's good about it is uh, now that I know what I'm doing at my job and what I need to do, I can ask very specific questions of the things I've been having trouble with. And um, this guy at the class is just, he's a superstar. Like I haven't been able to stump him yet. Everything I wanted to know, he's like, do this, do that, uh, do it like this. And here's the better way of doing that. And this is the problem with Mastercam and stuff. So um, super helpful. Do you guys, do you have a five axis capability in your Mastercam? We have it, but we don't use it. Okay. I think it came know, as a uh, package deal or something. Yeah. So there's a pocket and C post. I think it's official posts. It might already be in there. I don't know how that works with Mastercam. If they have all their posts or if you have to like specifically purchase one, but you know, check, see if the pocket and C post is available. You can try out some of their, some of the tool paths that aren't in fusion, right? Yeah. Yeah. See how they work on the pocket and C. Yeah. They're, uh, they have their version of adaptive, but it's called dynamic OptiRough. Yeah. But you've seen the, I think it was Mastercam, right? They did the Millennium Falcon and they did a couple of pocket and C demo parts. I think the other one was a Super Bowl related aluminum part, but they both look fantastic. Hmm. I have to check that out. I didn't see that. Yeah. I'll send you the, they post them on Instagram like a okay. year or two. I haven't seen anything recently. I think they were using pocket and C for like development. So they okay. were doing, just doing some stuff for fun um, from time yeah. to time. They're one of the booths that had a pocket NC at IMTS. Yeah. So I've, I've never seen a bad part on Mastercam's pocket NC. <laughs> they're always amazing. So their demo parts. Yeah, huh. um, I'm just, I, it's kind of weird because I didn't really have any commercial work the last week or so. So I was kind of starting to work through my backlog, the titanium testing and stuff like that. And then uh, this weekend, I end up. I got two new jobs. So <laughs> I think I'll, I'll be working on those next week. I think I can post some of the work. I need to check with the clients to make sure. I think these are going to be okay. So, Is it new work or repeat work? It's new work, new customers. Yeah. So yeah. But it's both the uh, one of them's pure V two fifty. The other one, I might actually. It's kind of a bigger part. I'm not sure yet if I can do it. I haven't really. I'll dig into it on Monday when I go to court it, see if it's doable on any of the machines here. Um, or I have a friend that has a water jet that I might just have him cut the blank you know, <laughs> initial stock and I just machined in interior features on one of the machines here. But uh, it's, I think it's going to be another one of those, uh, boy, I wish I still had my Nomad kind of days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it's like a little too big to fit on the Phantom and it's just not the right part for the, like the VT50. Big plate, just not really, you know, it would hit the, the A axis housing. So, uh, we'll figure it out. I do have the shape Oko, which can also do the work. So we'll see. Is the other ones are a small in, part. Eddie, have yeah. you actually, oh, yeah. I, <laughs> like the last three things that's done for me is, uh, cut some Delrin. Like I didn't want to run the bandsaw like mm -hmm. to net shape. And then, uh, and like I've done some aluminum plates, some large plates for, uh, not they weren't paid work. It was, but it was for someone else, like favor, favor for someone. But uh, it'll get a lot more use once I roll it out in the garage. Once the car's not in there, so I'm kind of waiting till the Neo gets here to kick my car out. <laughs> <laughs> so it's got like one more month, and then it's out. It's gonna be out in the sun or the rain and the hail and all that fun stuff. <laughs> Just out of curiosity, what are you doing to the inside of your garage as far as like? Uh, the walls and ceiling or whatever. You just yeah, so I'm, 
so I'm going to, um, so my first, no, I'm not painting. It's already painted. It's actually pretty well finished. Uh, but I want something to divide like my bay from the bay where my wife is going to continue to park her car. Mm-hmm. Uh, but originally I was going to put up sheetrock and I was like, nah, I don't really, that's too much. I want something I can take down pretty easily too when we sell the house. So um, I was looking at the, uh, I, I think I mentioned it before with the, the final, like the clear vinyl sheets, like you put in front of a walk-in fridge that you just walk through. Um, something like that, some sort of soft, uh, more like an air barrier. I just, mm. The only reason I need it at all is to kind of reduce the amount of area that I'm cooling with the air conditioning. Yeah, those things um, actually surprisingly work pretty well. We have those yeah. at work. Yeah, so I tested it. Like my enthusiasm for putting up those, even the vinyl curtains kind of waned when I, I basically did a test with the air conditioner that I bought for the garage. Um, just let it run in there for a couple of days. And it's like, I think, well, it wasn't really the, the peak heat of summer, but it was, we were hitting 90s and it was having no problem keeping the temperature where I wanted it. So, and that's with no door insulation on the garage doors yet. And, basically cooling the whole 400 square feet. So uh, I, I think I'll still put up something just to kind of keep the mess contained. But um, but yeah, it's not as urgent as I thought. I thought it basically just would have no chance of cooling. We'll see how, how it goes in summer when it's like 105. But, uh, but I'll be putting up, probably the only thing I'm really going to do now is just put up the door insulation and you know, the internal foam on the doors. And that's really more to help with the heat than the cooling. But um, okay. yeah, we'll kind of see where that goes. I've already got power in there. Uh, the other thing, the only other thing I'm doing is like, you know, putting in some workbenches and toolboxes and stuff like that. Just nothing permanently attached, but I'm even, even for that, like I have the general idea where I'm going to put the machine. I need to actually I have the dimensions and everything, but I actually want to see it there. So when the riggers kind of set it up, um, in my, what I consider you know, this probably the nominal place I want it. Um, I'll try that for a couple of weeks. If I don't like it, like I think it needs to be turned the other way. I'll just, I can move it myself. Once they drop it off, it's pretty easy to just lift up with a pallet jack and move. Cool. I mean, yeah, I'm curious when you're all finished, I want to snap a picture for me because I'm trying to get, um, ideas for how I want to change the garage that I'm going to be moving into. It needs a little bit of work. So, yeah. So, I mean, to be honest, you know, I've done very little permanent changes. Like that was by design right now because, you know, I may end up building in some storage, like some shelving up a little bit higher just to help kind of store stuff. But right now it's like I'm trying to maximize the amount of free square footage where I can Mm -hmm. walk around and have tables and stuff. So um, it's going to go like probably the next year once I get the machine in there and everything set up kind of where I initially want it. I'll probably be tweaking it for like a year before I get it where I want where everything's where I want it to be. Okay. So yeah, we'll do, I'll do one when I get it set up and then we'll take another picture in a year, see what, what I decide to change. Cool. Actually, I'm pretty curious to see that as well. Cause my garage has been pretty stagnant for the past year and I know I could use the space more efficiently, but right now it's, it's just, I have barely enough, uh, open horizontal space to do the projects I need to do. So do you, do something you have a full garage change. or do you, is there a I car have, in there? Uh, it's a two bay garage, but my aunt parks on the one half of it. So I only have essentially a, a one car garage worth of space to yeah. work in. It's just like me. Yeah. That's exactly what I have. I mean, you know, if there's enough 
money coming in down the road, I could probably persuade my wife to move the car out so I have room <laughs> for a second machine. But <laughs> we'll see. She, I think she'd probably want to move to a different house before that happens. So you know, with a, a three-car garage, a four-car, right? Damn you, Texans. <laughs> How about you, Winston? Right now, I'm just catching up on videos. Um, I've got, like, uh, a little bit of content in the in the queue, um, ready to go. Um, but for the most part, it's just, like, I've, I'm still sitting on a ton of footage. Um, so I've got a project coming out, uh, hopefully next week, about my little uh, vacuum chuck that I made for the Shape Oko. Um, that's going on my channel. And hopefully I can get out the uh, Infinity Mirror I've been working on this past week for the Carbide channel. I saw that. Did you build it? I did. So oh, okay. the way that happened was um, my office is kind of like a dumpster. People will just come in and say, hey, I've got some extra scrap material. I don't know what to do with it. Do you want it? And I'll say, sure, just put it on my desk. And so I've got just random pieces of like just all sorts of crap on my desk. And uh, I noticed that I had a sheet of mirrored acrylic and I had a partially mirrored sheet of polycarbonate. So like a two-way mirror type deal. Um, and I'm like, wait a minute. I know what I can make with that. And even though it's like the most basic, like unimpressive project you could do, I'm still kind of mesmerized by just this thing. I don't know. Yeah, Shiny cool. things, lights, mirrors, like, it's a cool optical illusion. Did yours have like discrete LEDs or was it, did you use like the yeah. like a 20 or 50, 50 strip um, or like a NeoPixel? It wasn't, a, wasn't quite NeoPixel. They weren't individually addressable, but it was an RGB LED strip. Uh, yeah, but you didn't have to solder each individual LED, right? You just soldered to the correct. end. Correct. Okay. I just had yeah. to solder to the end of it quite <laughs> poorly, I might add. But it works. I can change the colors. I'm going to bring it to work because I don't have enough room to show it off in my room or in the garage. But yeah, no, that was actually a surprisingly fun project. And it did, uh, taking a step back, recently my boss, Rob, threw me under the bus and he posted an open question on the uh, Carbide3D forum about, hey, what do you want to see on the Carbide3D channel? Um, and so people were like, oh, I want to see uh, like longer form projects or I want to see like uh, less speeds and feed stuff, or like I want to see Winston making mistakes. Um, and well, they're <laughs> going to get their wish. This is going to be a slightly <laughs> more complete project. There are going to be some screw ups. And the big one here was that I melted the acrylic and twice and got a big glob of plastic stuck on my end mill. Um, the second failure of which led to the destruction of the end mill. Um, <laughs> And I wasn't sure what was going on because I haven't felt this dumb since I had the Shape Oko 2 back in 2014. But what I think was happening was that the mirrored acrylic was extruded acrylic, not cast. And so extruded acrylic has a slightly lower melting point, glass transition point, so it gets gummy a lot easier. Uh, and it's just less pleasant to machine. And like uh, it, I was kind of machining mystery acrylic because I didn't really know what um, what form of acrylic this was, uh, who the vendor was, or anything. Um, and when I tried to Google um, like extruded acrylic mirrors and cast acrylic mirrors, a lot more extruded acrylic mirrors showed up. So I'm pretty sure that was my issue. 
And the end mill that I was using to do my cutout for this mirror was uh, the 282 single flute for that carbide 3D cells, which is uh, it's a ZRN coated, so it's meant for aluminum. Um, and I broke the only one I had, so I had to switch to a Datron uh, two millimeter cutter. And I'm not sure if it's the fact that I dropped my RPMs or the fact that the Datron cutter is awesome that I got through the rest of that mirror without any um, drama. But I'm now I'm wondering like maybe there's a small geometry thing because that cutter's meant to do basically any material, yeah. whereas the um, the 282, the Carbide 3D single flute, is primarily meant to do um, aluminum. So the rake angle might not be as aggressive. It might not be as good in plastic. Yeah, and it's going to be slightly sharper than the coated tool too, um, for no, you know, everything else being equal, <clears throat> since it's uncoated. Yeah, I think it's but, a combo of both. Yeah, you probably know this, but like, I, I know Datron sells some acrylic specific tools. I've never tried them, but um, so there must be some difference in geometry versus aluminum cutting tools. Yeah, oh. well, I'm trying to keep it relatively yeah. low budget just yeah. based on what I have in my garage. So so in the bombardment of requests, nobody asked to see more Winston twerking videos. <laughs> that's uh, That'll be exclusively on my Patreon at the higher <laughs> yeah. tier. Yeah, that's the bonus. Yeah, bo- bonus for subscribers. So you, uh, you have an announcement to make? Upcoming trip? Um, two trips, actually. Uh, the first one is I've, I've been on the fence about doing Maker Central, which is in the UK. Um, and being that every, every year seems to be the last year they're going to do it, <laughs> I figured since this year is the last year they're going to do it, I might as well jump over because um, I'm, I'm not getting my Maker Fair fix. So this is one of the few opportunities I can sort of just mingle with the, uh, the general Maker population. When is, um, that, tri- or when is that conference? That is uh, the first weekend of May. Oh, okay. So don't go to the West Coast <laughs> when I'm at Maker Central, Eddie. But I'm also, I, I actually just bought my flight today going to WorkbenchCon in Atlanta um, at the end of February. Again, just because there's not that many great networking opportunities for just makers in general. So I figured I'll just suck it up, pay whatever the exorbitant entry fee is and... Uh, Get some get some free breakfasts and uh, talk with some makers and hopefully land a collab or something. Have so, you yeah. did you practice for the contest? Any of the contests? You never quite know what the challenge is going to be. <laughs> um, I'm just going to wing it. Well, uh, good luck to you on that one. <laughs> thank you. I like that strategy. I think you'll be fine. Yeah, honestly, it's fun not preparing because it forces you to think on the fly, and that's one of the things I've I've kind of been missing. Like I like those. Uh, like, hey, you show up and there's like a little contest going on and you have to, to think fast on your feet. Um, I, I still like the um, the Autodesk Design Slam, uh, where it's like you put four contestants up and you give them a topic and you let them run and see who can come up with a, a workable solution within a time constraint. I think that brings out a lot more creativity. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I really like watching that because you get to see how other people approach a problem. And it was, you know, all three of us were like, wow, I can't believe most of them we're are doing using it all patch. wrong. <laughs> yeah, they're, everyone's using like patches and uh, T splines and stuff, where <laughs> us scrubs are doing parametric geometry. So that was pretty fun. 
Well, guys, I think that's uh, we got a pretty good show tonight. Uh, I think I'm ready to say good night. How about you? Uh, I'm pretty much ready for bed. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. So I'll say good night. All right. All right. Good night, Eddie. Good night, good night, Chris. Until next time. <laughs>